morning. Uh, I am not Jeremiah. I'm not the pastor here. I wish I could say that I didn't know about this until I found out he was sick, but that's not the case, so I can't use that as an excuse. Um, so, and I also have no idea how to start, so I'm going to pray. So, hey God, thank you for this day. I thank you for just giving us this opportunity to come and experience you. You know I'm excited. You know that I'm nervous, that I'm terrified. Uh, just, I pray that your spirit enables what I say and that you're present here today. Amen. All right. So who's the person you see when you look into the mirror? There are days that the person I see when I look into the mirror is a success. I may have received a good grade on that assignment I worked hard on. I may have received positive feedback in one of the ministries that I'm a part of. I may be managing my time or my money well. I may have figured out that balance between school and relationships. I may be reading my Bible, praying, or experiencing God regularly. On those days, the person I see when I look into the mirror is a success. And then I perceive what I see, and I project, oh, I project what I see to how God sees me, that he sees me on those days as a success. And that he says, Mike, you've done well today, being a disciple. But there are days, many, many other days, that I look into the mirror, and the person that I see is a failure. I may not have managed my time or my money well. I may not have received that good grade on that assignment. I may not have figured out that balance between school and relationships. I may not be praying, reading the Bible, or experiencing God regularly. On those days, the person I see when I look into the mirror is a failure. And I project what I see, and I perceive that's how God sees me, that on those days, he sees me as a failure. And I wonder how he sees me as a disciple, even when I fail. And yes, I understand theologically that salvation isn't putting successes and failures on a scale and hoping that success outweighs the failure, but rather that it's by grace through the gift of faith based on the faithfulness of Jesus. But when it comes to measuring myself or evaluating myself as a disciple, I put my successes and failures on a scale, and I hope that my success outweighs my failure. So today we're going to be talking about discipleship. In particular, we're going to be defining what a disciple is as it relates to success and failure. We're going to be looking at Mark 16, 1 through 8. And like each of the gospel accounts, Mark is a story about Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he taught. Like each of the gospel accounts, Mark is a story about Jesus. But like each of the gospel accounts, Mark takes each story or episode and frames it with his major topic or theme that he wishes to present. And this major topic, he hopes, changes the way we per how we perceive our reality, resulting in the way we change, resulting in how we live. And so for Mark, that topic or that theme is discipleship. And for the first 15 chapters of Mark, he doesn't define what a disciple is. Rather, he gives us stories of people who are disciples and how they respond to Jesus. In some of these stories, you see people who are disciples responding to Jesus in a manner that's a success. People like the woman who bled internally for 12 years. 
how she sought out Jesus and trusted in his power and healing ability to heal her. And then there are other stories, stories of failure, failure by people who are disciples. In fact, the people Jesus calls disciples fail time and time again throughout the Gospel of Mark. But again, neither of these successes nor these failures, they're not defining who a disciple is. That person is already a disciple. It's just how they respond to being a disciple, respond to being called by Jesus. So today we're going to be looking at Mark 16, 1 through 8, and we're going to be defining what a disciple is. If you stand, I like that Jeremiah does that. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought aromatic spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week at sunrise, they went to the tomb. They had been asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled back. Then as they went into the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is a place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples, even Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and you will see him there just as he told you. Then they went out and ran from the tomb, for terror and bewilderment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. You can say it. Happy endings. We all deeply desire them, but Mark closes his gospel with the comment that the women left the tomb in bewilderment and fear and said nothing to no one because they were afraid. Not much of a happy ending. And for those of you who have your Bibles open, you'll notice that there are an additional 11 verses. They're put in brackets and there's a note. And that note is basically suggesting that those 11 verses are not part of the original composition. They're not authentic to the Gospel of Mark. But when we read those 11 verses, we get a very different picture ending the gospel. The women did tell the disciples. The disciples got who Jesus was. Jesus did signs and wonders and commissioned the disciples to do likewise. And then Jesus sent them out into the world to proclaim this message. That's the happy ending that we deeply desire. But Mark doesn't include that. Mark closes the curtain on them leaving the tomb in bewilderment and fear and saying nothing to nobody. It's not much of a happy ending. It's not what we desire. My mom, more than anyone I know, deeply desires happy endings. When she reads a book or watches a movie, her entire evaluation comes from the closing scenes. Does she receive that happy ending? When we watch an action suspense thriller, did the main character save the city from disaster, saving all the people he loved. If it happened, she's satisfied. She sees that movie as a success. When we watch those romantic comedies and the two characters who should fall in love do, and they have that happily ever after, that movie was a success to her. But there are times where we watch movies and the main character fails in saving the day. To her, that movie was a failure. 
It didn't give her that happy ending. Or when we watch those love movies and the two characters who should have fallen in love don't, but go their separate ways, intending to never speak to each other again. She hates it. That movie was a failure. She didn't get her happy ending. <clears throat> and yet, when we look at the stories of our lives, do we have a happy ending to each chapter? Does each chapter of our story have a success story? Or are we like how Mark closes the gospel account, where we experience failure? My story is one of failure. Many of you heard it a few months back when I was up here. And it is only by the grace, the ironies, and the sense of humor of God that I am somehow in the Christian community, that I am somehow doing what I do. My story is not a success story. My story is one of failure time and time again. And when I read the Gospel of Mark from start to finish, the disciples fail time and time again. Mark recounts their failure often. But the Gospel of Mark is not just a story about the disciples. It's also a story about Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he taught. And so, why do I keep bringing up failure? Why is this something that I've been addressing, even though I told you I'd be defining what a disciple is? For two reasons. One, that's how Mark closes his gospel account. And the second reason is, if I can convince you that failure is not part of being a disciple, then the same side of the coin, uh, the different side of the coin says that success is also not part of being a disciple. The defining quality of a disciple is not putting your success and failures on a scale and hoping success outweighs it. Success has nothing to do with being a disciple and neither does failure. And so what is discipleship then? It's in, I think it's in verses 5 through 7 in Mark. I'm going to read it again. Then as they went into the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples, even Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. The defining quality of a disciple is the promise that the young man in white clothes gives to these women. It's the promise that Jesus will go to Galilee, that he will see them there. The defining quality of a disciple is the promise that Jesus will meet them. And the defining quality for you is the promise that Jesus will meet you. A disciple is not someone who puts their successes and failures on a scale and weighs them. The defining quality of a disciple is the promise that Jesus desires to meet with you. It's relationship. It's personal. It's, I can't even put it into words. And it's so personal that the young man in white clothes even calls Peter by name. A few days back, Peter denied even knowing who Jesus was three times the night that he was arrested. And the young man in white clothes tells the women and singles Peter out, saying that in spite of his failure, in spite of all of your failure, that the deep desire of Jesus is to meet you. To, be relationship, to have a relationship with you, to have that intimate connection with you. 
That is the defining quality of a disciple. And in Christian circles, it's real easy for me to think of the vastness of God. We call this his omnipresence or his transcendence. And it's this idea that God is everywhere all at once, all at the same time. Which is pretty much impossible to wrap your mind around. Well, that's how I think of God, is that he's everywhere all at once, all at the same time. And that's true, that God is omnipresent, but the promise of the young man in white clothes isn't that Jesus is just omnipresent, but that he is also present here in my time and space. It's a promise that the omnipresent God is present today with this desire to have that relationship, that desire to meet you. It's not just a promise of him being omnipresent. It's a promise of him being present here today. And that blows my mind every time. And when we look then at the women's response to the promise that Jesus deeply desires to meet them, that they leave the tomb in bewilderment and fear, we get it explicitly that success and failure are not defining qualities of a disciple. The young man in white clothes didn't tell the women, go tell the disciples, even Peter. And if you do, Jesus will see you there. He doesn't condition it upon their success or failure, but there is a condition. That condition, that necessary human response is, are you willing to meet with Jesus? This tomb that the women and young man are at is in Jerusalem. And Jesus is said to be going ahead of them into Galilee. That necessary response is, are you willing to have that relationship with Jesus? Are you willing to meet Jesus even when you succeed, even when you fail? Because that is what a disciple is. It's someone who responds to Jesus and still desires to meet with him. That understands that who they are in their essence is someone who Jesus wants to meet with and chooses to keep meeting with him. And Jesus wants to meet with you in spite of your success, in spite of your failure. And for me, it's at times easier to stomach the fact that Jesus wants to meet with me when I succeed. But it's a whole other can of worms trying to stomach the fact that when I fail, Jesus wants to meet with me. That failure at times can be overwhelming. One of my favorite songs opens with the line, failing is not just for failures. It's for everyone. Failures just have more experience, but you can't quit now. This echoes what we see Paul talking about in Romans 6 when he asked the question, should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? Our English Bibles say something to the effect of absolutely not. But as Daniel Wallace, a notable Greek scholar, says, Paul's response to that question is far more explicitly vulgar than an absolutely not. Paul is detested by the fact that people think that they can sin just so that grace can abound. And yet in the very next chapter in Romans 7, he's talking about that he does what he doesn't want to do. He fails all the time, and it's not something that he wants to do, but it's something that he regularly experiences. And so failure, it's difficult to get a handle on. I hate it. I do it all the time. And when I look at my life, I respond to failure in three different ways. The first is this idea of ignorance. I kind of kick what I did under the rug, pretend like it didn't happen. I justify what I did, and I tell myself it's definitely not right. 
but I think I see a little bit more gray than black. And so I think it's on the side of a middle ground. And what I do is I numb my mind so that God can't interrupt my thoughts. I watch a lot of TV. I don't read the Bible. My books collect dust. I spend less time praying because I don't want to come face to face with my failure. I don't want to have to deal with that in my relationship with God. And so I just put it aside. I'm not willing to still meet with Jesus when I do that. The second is this idea of self-pity or self-loathing. For me, it's this like overwhelming sense of dejection, depression. My failure paralyzes or cripples me. I don't go and meet God because, well, I tell myself it's because I don't want to hurt him with my failure. But in reality, I just don't want him to see me as a failure. It cripples me. It debilitates me. And I'm still not willing to meet with Jesus when I come with failure. And in those two instances, I keep putting my success and failure on those scales. And I hope that my success outweighs my failure. But when I see that the failure outweighs that success, I'm not willing to meet with Jesus. That idea of love or grace or forgiveness becomes abstract and distant. It's not something that I'm willing to experience. I think I need to add more weight to the success before I think Jesus will want to meet with me. But the third way that you can respond to failure, a guy I work with named Paul Watson calls failing forward. It's this idea that I know I'm going to fail, that it's part of my experience and it's a part of my story. But instead of putting, defining myself by putting that success and failure on the scale, I'm going to continue to define myself as someone Jesus wants to meet with in spite of my success or in spite of my failure. By failing forward, it's this idea that I'm going to learn from my failure, not because I want a success story, because I think Jesus only meets with those with success stories, but rather I want to fail forward because the person you're in a relationship with is the person you become to look like more and more. And if you're continuing to meet with Jesus, you'll continue to start looking like him more and more. By failing forward, we address sin, we address failure by continuing to meet with him and recognizing that love and grace are present realities. They're not just abstract. They're experiential. They're not distant. And I say all of this today as someone who two and a half years ago wanted nothing less than to define being a disciple as a relationship. I did everything I could to define it as the studious person. But when it comes to defining a disciple, if you use any other terminology than relationship, you don't have discipleship. All you have is your scale with success and failure on it. And you're constantly trying to add more to the success side and trying to take away from the failure side. Discipleship is simply Jesus wanting to meet with you, to have a relationship with you. That's his deepest desire. And his deepest desire is that you respond to him and still have that relationship, even when you fail. Um, I'm going to pray. I thank you for this day of... I hope there was clarity. I have no idea, but I hope that you spoke, that your Holy Spirit was present and enabled what I said. I thank you for these people who are awesome, for fun, that they look like they had a good time because they were experiencing you. Amen.